History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 117, At World's End. Before we begin, I just want to remind everyone to get their questions in, either by direct message on social media, the contact page at historyofpersiapodcast.com, or email to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com for the episode 125 Q&A to wrap up the Achaemenid era. Last time, we returned to the narrative and covered Alexander the Great's battle for control of Bactria and Sogdiana. Despite defeating the Achaemenids, the local Sogdian nobility refused to accept the Macedonian occupation lying down. From late 329 to early 327 BCE, they fought a brutal insurgent campaign and forced Alexander to march from mountain fortress to mountain fortress and root them out. Along the way, the Macedonians battled the Sogdians' Saka allies and captured Roxana. The daughter of Oxyartes, one of the Sogdian rebels. Upon Oxyartes' surrender, Alexander formed a marriage pact with the warlord and married Roxana supposedly his one true love. I do wonder what Hephaestion would have to say about that presentation of history, though. Once the rebels were finally dealt with, Alexander settled the organization of Bactria for the time being and announced that he, his army, his wife, and even her family were not done conquering just yet. When 327 came around, the army left Bactra in the hands of its new satrap. Then they marched southeast, heading back into the Hindu Kush to begin Alexander's invasion of India. Nominally, this had all been Achaemenid territory, and the northwestern fringe of the subcontinent certainly was under direct Achaemenid control from a very early point, all the way back with Cyrus the Great. However, the gradual collapse of authority under Darius III and Artaxerxes V, compounded with the extended period of revolt in Sogdia, meant that these Indian satrapies had functionally been independent for three years. That's not a lot of time, but it is enough time to start getting used to the newfound independence. Alexander's arrival would be a rude reminder that they were still supposed to be part of a grand continent-spanning empire. According to Quintus Curtius Rufus, Alexander outfitted his army with shiny new equipment, 
armor decorated with gold, shields adorned with silver, spears inlaid with ivory, the works. This probably isn't true, at least not for most of the army as Curtius describes it, but even though he is the only source, I wouldn't be surprised if it was true for Alexander's personal guards and companions. It's not the sort of equipment you would take into battle, but marching in formation on parade when you enter a conquered city, it would cut a striking image, especially since the Greeks already believed that India was immensely wealthy. First impressions are important, after all. The Agiad Imperial Army, still largely formed of Macedonians, Greeks, and Thracians, but now including recruits from across the empire, especially Iran and Central Asia, marched out, now numbering around 50,000 soldiers plus camp followers. They started crossing through modern Afghanistan. Several of the local Persian governors had already sent representatives to Alexander after Bessus's death, and Alexander had actually planned to establish a new satrapy called Parapamisidae, including territory formerly split between the northern fringes of Achaemenid Gandahara and Satagadea. The western Indic vassal kingdom of Kapisa was supposed to become the core of this new province, with Alexander officially renaming the city of Kapisi to another Alexandria usually identified with modern Bagram. Technically, this was Alexandria in the Caucasus, because the Greeks believed that the Hindu Kush eventually wrapped around the north to meet with the Caucasus near the Black Sea. But for simplicity, I'll just call this one Alexandria Capisi. So they stopped in Alexandria Capisi to set up an actual Macedonian garrison, and government for Parapamisidae before advancing south to the Coffin River. C-O-P-H-E-N, in case you were wondering. Roughly at the site of modern Kabul. Coffin just being the ancient form of that same name. While there, Alexander received King Omphis of Taxila, the most important city of the Upper Indus Valley who was currently engaged in a bitter struggle against his neighbor and rival, a king called Porus. Presumably, these two had been Achaemenid vassals, or at least Omphis had been, but recent events had sparked a struggle for dominance among the petty kings of the Indus region. Alexander was all too happy to offer Omphis his aid, so long as the king of Taxila pledged himself to the Agiad dynasty, which was basically just a return to the Achaemenid status quo. The Greeks called the town that eventually became modern Kabul Nikaya, and they stopped there to split their forces. Alexander took command of just over half the army, including the bulk of the infantry and light cavalry while Perdiccas and Hephaestion were placed in command of a slightly smaller contingent with about half of the heavy cavalry, as well as all the Greek mercenaries. The two armies would march down different branches of the northeastern Indus tributary rivers to subjugate any native cities that refused to submit to Alexander's rule and rendezvous again at Taxila. 
King Omphis went with Hephaestion to act as a guide, while Alexander was accompanied by Sisikotos, an Indian commander who had served the Persians prior to the Battle of Gaugamela. And you'll notice how Hephaestion and other Macedonian officers we haven't heard much about start taking the spotlight at this point in the campaign. Between treason, personal insults to Alexander, and needing to find governors for all this new territory, there was a lot of turnover in Alexander's officer corps during the conquest of eastern Iran. So now there were opportunities for previously obscure sub-commanders to carve out a place for themselves. Hephaestion's forces hit resistance first, besieging Astis, the petty king of Gandhara, for a full month before breaking through the walls of Astis's castle. Evidently, Astis was another of Omphis's local rivals, and King Omphis already had one of Gandhara's nobles in his entourage, ready and able to install a friendly local dynast. Astis was killed in the fortress as it fell, and Hephaestion moved on with his own campaign. Meanwhile, Alexander followed the Khoes River, possibly the modern Kuram, into the territory of a people called the Aspasians. He was headed for the Khyber Pass, the route that takes you between modern Afghanistan and Pakistan. But in the 4th century BC, the region was littered with many mountain cultures like several that we've encountered throughout the Achaemenid period. The Aspasians had little interest in foreign rule and hilltop fortresses that they could retreat to and resist any invaders. So, that's exactly what they did. Of course, we're talking sparsely populated mountain herders, so the first few towns fell easily to Alexander's advance. The largest Aspasian city put up more resistance. The Macedonian forces made a direct assault, just as they had so many times in the past, only to be repelled at the gates. Both Ptolemy and Alexander himself were wounded in this attack. So the army besieged the Aspasian walls. It took a few days to find a suitable place to break down the outer fortifications, and the Aspasians held them back at the inner wall long enough to be noteworthy. But Alexander just commanded so many missile troops that the defenders were eventually overwhelmed, allowing the Macedonian vanguard to scale the walls and take the city center. Alexander wanted to set a precedent here. And if you've been paying attention since about the reign of Artaxerxes II, you know that a king wanting to set precedent with a conquered city is not a good sign. As the inheritor of the Persian Empire, these Indic cities that resisted him were not being conquered by Alexander. Instead, as the Lord of All Asia saw it, they were rebels and would be punished as such. Captives were executed and the city was burned to the ground. But the Aspasian capital was not. Their king came out at the head of his army to try and face a Macedonian contingent under Ptolemy in the field. 
and supposedly he was killed in a cavalry charge by Ptolemy himself, bringing the Aspasian conflict to an end when the rest of his people just surrendered. After the Aspasians, they approached another Indian vassal kingdom, the land of the Goraians, and their fortress city of Arigayam, modern Nawagi, Pakistan, along the Choaspes River. The Macedonians occupied Aragayam peacefully, with Craterus taking control of the city to make it the center of Macedonian power in the region. However, while leading a foraging party through the surrounding countryside, Ptolemy discovered a large Gorion force assembling to retake the city. It is not stated how many men were coming to assault Aragayam, but we can assume several thousand at least for Ptolemy to report it as a genuine threat. Alexander led a small band out as bait for the Gorions and successfully lured them in, thinking they could successfully attack the small Macedonian party in the open. Unbeknownst to them, Ptolemy was leading a larger force around their flanks through the mountains. The uneven ground made it difficult for the Macedonian phalanx under Ptolemy's command to fight in formation, and rendered cavalry all but useless, which led to a difficult and protracted battle. But the Macedonians once again just had a pure numerical advantage and were able to overwhelm the Gorions through attrition and presumably better unit cohesion since this was an army of people who had been fighting together for literal decades. The Gorions submitted to Alexander before the main Macedonian host moved on. As they advanced through the rest of the area, following the Penchkora River now, they found isolated bands of Gorion resistors, but nothing that could effectively challenge the full army. Then they went into the territory of the Asakenians, and this was a different story. According to Arian, the Asakenians mustered a force of 2,000 cavalry, 30,000 infantry, and 30 war elephants, the first elephant force the Macedonians would have to face in open battle. This would have made the Asakenian army even larger than Alexander's forces. Remember, Hephaestion had half the troops at this point. Presumably, this is an exaggeration. But the greater point is that they were still a genuine challenger with at least similar numbers to the Macedonian army. The more important number is probably the claim that the Asakenians hired 7,000 mercenaries from further east within India, possibly rebels or refugees from the Nanda Empire, experienced veterans to form a fighting corps for the army. Alexander assaulted the Asakenian capital at Masaka, and somewhat overconfident in the 7,000 mercenaries, the Asakenians sallied out from behind their fortifications to attack the Macedonians directly. Here, Alexander deployed a fusion of Persian and Macedonian tactics, ordering a barrage of archers and mounted javelin throwers to loose their missiles as soon as the Asakenians got within range, disrupting the enemy forces and prompting a retreat as they were chased by the Macedonian phalanx. 
Everyone settled in for a siege, but the terrain was too steep and the walls were too wide for the Macedonians to fully encircle Masaka. The Indian mercenaries were able to range out behind the Macedonian line and burn the siege weapons that were coming up in the Macedonian baggage train. Alexander ordered his men to construct a single, simple siege tower that could extend a bridge over the Asakenian walls, which worked initially, but when the Hippaspists tried to march across the bridge and attack the city directly, their structure collapsed, sending many of Alexander's honor guard to their deaths. After three days of attempted sieges, a sturdier bridge was deployed, and the Macedonians were able to kill the Indian mercenary captain on the city walls, disrupting their enemy enough to overwhelm them and get control of the gates. They were thrown open, and the Macedonians poured into Masaka, forcing the native defenders to surrender or face mass slaughter. Naturally, they chose the former. The king of Masaka and his family were taken hostage as the conquerors installed their own forces within the city. The Asakenians who escaped made camp in the mountains nearby and were surrounded. They tried to escape, but were so penned in by the Macedonians that their hilltop camp became a slaughterhouse. From Masaka, Alexander proceeded into the Peshawar Valley to take the cities of Ora, modern Odigram, and Bazira, modern Birakot. Alexander thought after the fall of Masaka, the neighboring cities would simply surrender. He was wrong. He sent General Attalus to occupy Ora, which sent an army out to face the Macedonians in the field. They were easily defeated, leaving a severely beaten force to attempt and defend Aura from a Macedonian siege. Bazira, on the other hand, was tougher to crack. The city was so confident in its fortifications that when General Coinus arrived, the defenders didn't even attempt to repel him in battle. Alexander was forced to march down to Bazira himself and reinforce the siege. However, while Alexander was on his way, his forces were attacked by a scouting party from Aura. Alexander pursued them back to their city, joining Attalus for another assault on the city walls. With Alexander's reinforcements and the siege weapons they had prepared to take to Bazira, Aura fell almost immediately. Alexander stuck around just long enough to ensure that it was firmly in Attalus's hands before taking all the siege equipment to its intended destination at Bazira. However, when Aura fell, the citizens of Bazira fled their city to a more fortified position, a fortress down the Swat River called Aornos. Ptolemy and Alexander's personal assistant, Eumenes of Cardia, were sent ahead to scout the area around this fortress. It had a moat, a stockade, and a series of narrow, natural ravines that prevented any organized army from even approaching the walls in formation. The northern side was deemed the most vulnerable, guarded only by a single wide ravine. 
So Alexander did what he did best and ordered thousands of soldiers to start filling in the gap with as much debris as possible to form a bridge. Dirt, rocks, carpentry scraps from their siege weapons, metal scraps from broken weapons, you name it. It all went into the pit. It took three days to cross, but finally Alexander's forces reached and secured the area just outside the walls of Aornos. The king supposedly led the vanguard with climbing ropes to scale the stockade and take the city himself. And when Aornos fell, Alexander presided over a ceremony dedicating the city to Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. From there, they turned north, crossing between the Coffin and Indus rivers as they approached the city of Nyssa, one of the Indian Ganasongas, oligarchic republics not unlike the polis they were familiar with back in Greece. Akufis, the president of Nyssa's ruling council, came out to meet with Alexander. Through interpreters, Alexander concluded that Nyssa was connected to a god who resembled the Greek god of wine, Dionysus, at least enough to believe that Nyssa tied to the myth of Dionysus conquering India. Akufis, for his part, just wanted to surrender peacefully, retain his position of authority, and get Alexander to pass his city without violence. So Nyssa swore itself to Macedonian authority, and the Westerners celebrated a festival to their god for a few days before moving on, taking Akufis's son and grandson as political hostages, and a hundred Indian cavalry from the city as part of their tribute to the new empire. When they finally reached the Indus River, Alexander was met by envoys from Taxila, which King Omphis had reached with Hephaestion and Perdiccas well before Alexander arrived in the region. These envoys brought the first wave of Taxila's tribute to their new overlord, alongside additional cavalry forces and 30 war elephants, the first such beasts to join the Macedonian army on their march. Before crossing the Indus, which the Greeks saw as the border into India proper, Alexander ordered more celebrations and sacrifices to the gods. And after these ads, we will follow them into this strange new land. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app, 
it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. So, India. Even the slightly more arid regions that make up much of modern Pakistan where Alexander campaigned, it was unlike anything the Europeans had ever encountered. It's tropical, forested, and since it's actually a subcontinent that's been colliding with Asia for millions of years, it is surrounded by mountains. These natural boundaries have allowed the South Asian subcontinent to develop a more unique ecosystem, and this was so far from Greece that the invaders had never seen anything like most of the plants and animals they now encountered. They met dark-skinned Indian people, a trait they had only ever really associated with inner Africa. They had been fighting their way through the mountains over the course of winter and spring 327 and 326, and suddenly found themselves in the midst of the tropical monsoon season, a form of weather that they had no context for. It's easy to imagine just how alien this must have all been, through the combination of completely new experiences and things they had only ever heard rumors about in a very different African or Arabian context. Even the gods and traditions were utterly unheard of. Schools of philosophy they had never encountered, like Buddhism and Jainism, flourished. It was another planet. Alexander led his troops south from the Khyber Pass to Taxila, to rejoin the forces that had gone ahead with Hephaestion, Perdiccas, and Omphis, and paused only briefly to establish a permanent Macedonian garrison and install a Macedonian satrap for his new province of India, Old Persian Hindush. Then it was time to expand his power and honor his pledge to Omphis, by marching against the Taxilan king's enemies. It is at this point that we really have to start wondering whether or not Alexander was conquering territory that had once been part of the Achaemenid Empire. 
if only loosely, or at some point in the distant past under Darius the Great or Xerxes, or if Alexander was poised to become the first Western conqueror to penetrate this deep into the Indus Valley. We know that Darius conquered some of it, and it is possible that some of his successors had at least campaigned there as well. However, we know so little about Persia's Indian satrapies that it is impossible to decide how far east they actually went. Omphus's rival was King Porus, possibly not actually a name, but derived from his people, the Puru, a tribe mentioned in the Rig Veda. Porus controlled the territory between the Hydaspes River, the modern Jhelum, and the Chenab River, the second and third westernmost rivers in the Punjab. Achaemenid control at least extended to somewhere between the Indus and the Hydaspes. We don't know how much farther. It is possible that Porus's people had never been Achaemenid subjects. When Alexander arrived on the northwest side of the Hydaspes in May of 326, Porus was already encamped on the southeastern bank. The river was shallower than the Indus, which really isn't saying much, and it was still swollen with monsoon water. It took several days for the Macedonian scouts to find a suitable crossing point, even though they had pulled boats used to cross the Indus overland with them. The nearest potential crossing was found almost 27 kilometers, 17 miles, upstream from the opposing camps, at a place where a small island divided the river. Over the course of several days, a detachment of the main Macedonian forces crossed on rafts, while Alexander supervised from a position on the island. To maintain the element of surprise, Alexander led his men in small groups, taking a wide arc back to the west out of sight of Porus's camp, before circling back around to the crossing. Meanwhile, Craterus was tasked with leading false maneuvers along the Hydaspes' banks to distract Porus's scouts and observers. Alexander crossed with 5,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry, his elite troops, supposedly facing a force of over 20,000, including dozens of elephants. And that low-end estimate of 20,000 isn't even all that unrealistic. When the Indian forces realized what was happening, Porus dispatched his own son in command of around 2,000 cavalry, and 120 light war chariots to disrupt the crossing. But by the time they arrived, the Macedonian troops were already assembling on the southeastern bank. There was a brief skirmish, but the Indians were forced to withdraw. Upon hearing that his opponent was bearing down on his camp, Porus ordered his troops to move out, but left a token force with the bulk of his elephant corps to give the impression that a much larger army was still in camp and dissuade Craterus from attempting to cross and attack the Indian army from behind. 
he arranged his troops along the riverbank with rows of spearmen behind a line of elephants, spaced out to one beast every hundred feet or so, just wide enough to provide maneuverability for his own infantry, but just near enough that the elephants could close the distance on any attacker and cover the whole line with arrows from the archers mounted on their backs. Indian cavalry formed a cap on either flank of the infantry formation, which was just a bit wider than the elephant line. Porus himself was commanding from atop the centermost elephant. Alexander took an unusual formation. He lined up his infantry as usual, Macedonian phalanx on the left, hoplite-style hypospists to their right, but then concentrated all of his Hatairoi horsemen on the right-hand side under his own personal command, apparently leaving his left flank open to a cavalry attack. Porus must have been a bit confused and expecting some deception, but it would have been hard to anticipate what exactly was going to happen. These invaders may have looked strange, wore strange clothing, and spoken a strange language, but horses, armor, and spear work the same no matter where you go. Then it became clear. Alexander personally led the light cavalry in the first charge, primarily made up of Saka recruited from the Dahai Confederacy during the Macedonians' time in Central Asia. They assaulted the Indian left flank, out of range from the elephants with a barrage of arrows and javelins. Porus's right flank cavalry guard raced around behind their own lines to reinforce their comrades, but the Macedonian heavy cavalry under Coinus mimicked their moves, riding behind the Macedonian infantry and across the battlefield in a huge sweeping arc almost making a complete circle as they went behind Porus's formation and charged into the Indian horsemen from the rear. Practically, there was nothing the Macedonians could do to actually counter the elephants other than pray to their gods and hope for the best. But their pikes were much longer than the Indian spears and swords, they could hold up their peltas to shield themselves as best they could from the elephant archers and engage the Indian infantry from out of range of their enemy's blades. So the phalanx charged straight across the battlefield and engaged. Elephants were already diverting to assist their own cavalry and were caught face to face with the Macedonian phalanx. The Macedonians were a combination of hardened veterans and much too close to these lumbering monsters to get away even if they wanted to, so they attacked the elephants at spear point. When spears broke, they drew swords, or Sokka-style Sigaris axes, and ran between the elephants' legs, slashing at tendons to bring the animals down. And if that stands out as especially cruel... What the hell do you think was happening to the horses in all these cavalry battles? Overwhelmed by an impenetrable wall of pikes, the Indian infantry that tried to engage with the Macedonians were forced to retreat, only for Coinus to turn his cavalry, already behind the Indians, 
and catch them in a pincer. Coinus's horsemen became the anvil to the phalanx's hammer, crushing Porus's infantry in between. Meanwhile, Macedonian scouts on the far side of the river had been waiting and watching to alert Craterus when the battle began. As soon as he heard, Craterus led the remaining 30,000 or so soldiers in Alexander's army across a ford in the Hydaspes, closer to Porus's camp where they overwhelmed the unprepared camp guards and seized control. When the retreating forces from the battlefield began to appear, they found themselves trapped between two Macedonian armies. Initially, King Porus himself refused to surrender, riding around on his elephant and throwing javelins at Alexander's envoys until finally, a captive from his own entourage was sent to talk him down. Supposedly, Porus agreed to talk terms of surrender only if Alexander would treat him as a fellow king and not a defeated vassal. Alexander agreed to this, confirmed Porus in his position as king of the region, and even agreed to give Porus control over any of his neighbors that he received Macedonian help in defeating. In exchange, Porus became Alexander's vassal, set aside his conflict with Taxila, and would allow Alexander to establish new Macedonian garrisons in his territory, primarily the colony cities of Bukephala and Nikaia. Nikaia simply means a place of victory, commemorating Alexander's success. Bucephala was named in honor of Alexander's favorite warhorse, Bucephalus, which was killed during the Battle of the Hydaspes, either in the skirmish with Porus's son or during the fighting itself. That horse had been Alexander's companion for his entire adult life, his entire tenure as king, and his entire campaign across the Persian Empire. And in Alexander's view, that made this horse worthy of its own city. In modern times, especially among more Indian or Pakistani nationalistic movements, Alexander's victory over King Porus has been called into question, either doubting that the battle ever happened, or more often, claiming that Porus actually defeated Alexander, or at least fought him to a draw. There are definitely suspicious elements to the ancient accounts, notably claiming that half or more of Porus's forces were wiped out, while Alexander is only said to have lost a few hundred men. This doesn't make sense with the apparent position of strength that Porus was able to negotiate from in the aftermath, or just the very lopsided numbers of the initial engagement. However, although the original sources are lost to us now, Plutarch, Diodorus, Arian, and Curtius all heavily cite eyewitness accounts, such as those written by Ptolemy and Eumenes of Cardia. They also go on to describe the follow-up campaign where Porus supported Alexander in further conquests. These original works were written for an audience of fellow eyewitnesses, their children, grandchildren, and friends or acquaintances. Like some of the taller tales recorded by Xenophon, 
there is still only so much room for exaggeration when the participants are still around. The more realistic version of events is simply that the scale of Alexander's success here was exaggerated, and much like many of his battles in Iran and Central Asia, a hard-fought battle where he just barely came out on top had some low points glossed over in the retelling. Based on both Alexander and Porus's behavior afterwards, it is safe to say that the Macedonians won on the battlefield, but also that Porus had the capacity to put up another fight if he had wanted to, leading to ultimate victory by negotiation rather than force of arms. Alexander and his forces followed Porus back to his capital, where they ironed out the exact terms of Porus's vassalage, and the Macedonian high command took in some information about this new environment. A new world to conquer from Porus and Omphis. Over the following month, they made plans for a campaign across the northern Punjab, lands that were almost certainly never conquered by their Achaemenid predecessors. However, we've hit one of those points where there's a lot to get through on one topic, and not enough detail on another. So the Malian campaign will have to wait. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.